Welcome back, everybody, here to part two. If you didn't listen to part one of this episode, that's okay. They should stand alone pretty well. Uh, Originally, I intended them to be completely separate, standalone episodes anyways. But the more I got into this one and the idea evolved, the more that it related to the other and it felt appropriate to release them together as almost a two-parter. Originally, this episode was going to talk broadly about American strategic view versus that of our enemy. And I was going to mention this paper that I'd been studying uh, tangentially. But the more that I got into the paper, the more and more it related to and paralleled what I wanted to talk about and shed more and more light on the subject for me to the point where I decided that I would pretty much just do this as a book review, running through the book and then straying off into some of my thoughts on the subject. Before I even get started, there's one thing that I want to be very, very clear on. As I talk through this subject, when I say things like the enemy or the Russians or the Chinese, I'm not talking about any ethnic group or anyone of descent or even someone who's an immigrant from those places. What I'm talking about are people who hold certain nationalistic beliefs and work to further the causes of these nations which are competing with the United States. There are plenty of great Americans who have come from China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, you name it. Uh, And there are plenty of white U.S.-born citizens who have been traitors to their nation and even to liberty at large. So with all of that said, it should be understood that what I'm talking about here are governments and their followers and adherents. So what I'm going to be talking through today, or at least using as a foundation uh, to talk about this subject, is a paper called Unrestricted Warfare. Uh, It's by two Chinese colonels in the People's Liberation Army. It was published in 1999. Uh, It is open source, so you can buy it anywhere that books are sold. And reading this paper was extremely useful in several ways. It highlighted how our enemies never take their eyes off of our strategy and never stop analyzing us, where we seem to be somewhat blind to their strategies. It defined what many of our enemies understand about the evolution of warfare. It's also incredibly insightful and accurate in many of its predictions, but most importantly, it acts as a playbook to a lot of what we are seeing coming out of our enemies today in their attacks on us and in their conquests in the world. So let's jump in. Uh, I didn't start this book expecting to review it cover to cover, but luckily I'm a pretty slow reader who tends to highlight and write in the margins of all of my books, so I should have everything I need to go back and give a brief summary. What I plan on doing is going somewhat quickly but methodically through the entire book, uh, reading from the highlighted portions that I think capture the essence of each chapter in the book in its entirety, And then speaking aside on some of my thoughts and notes and how it's relevant to the subject that I've been covering. Where the idea flows and it suits summarization, I may jump from quote to quote or paragraph to paragraph or even page to page uh, fluidly, so forgive me for doing that. I highly encourage anyone interested to go back and read the book in its entirety, but I'm going to try to capture as much as I can as efficiently as I can while leaving room for commentary. 
The book is divided into a preface, part one, introduction, and then chapters one through four, part two, introduction, and then chapters five through eight, and a conclusion. So, starting with the preface, the authors say, In the aftermath of Desert Storm, Uncle Sam has not been able to again achieve a commendable victory. And I think this is interesting because it immediately highlights what I was thinking about with how hyper-focused our enemies are on us while we seem to have a huge blind spot towards them. Much of this paper focuses on and analyzes the successes and failures of the United States and does so in the context of, at the time, the most recent conflict, Desert Storm, which the two authors have clearly studied deeply. The authors go on to say, War will no longer be what it was originally. When people begin to lean toward and rejoice in the reduced use of military force to resolve conflicts, war will be reborn in another form and in another arena. New principles of war are no longer using armed force to compel the enemy to submit to one's will, but rather using all means, including armed force or non-armed force, military and non-military, and lethal and non-lethal means to compel the enemy to accept one's interests. I strung those three statements together to form what I thought was a pretty good thesis statement for the overall book. We start to see here the author's ideas that future warfare should and will cross any boundaries perceived in past wars and saturate all aspects of society. Moving on, part one of the book is called On New Warfare, and in the introduction, the authors propose that not only will the boundaries of warfare disappear, but the very definition itself will become blurred, saying, New concepts of weapons has gradually blurred the face of war. Does a single hacker attack count as a hostile act or not? Can using financial instruments to destroy a country's economy be seen as a battle? These mentions of a single hacker and financial attacks give preview to some ideas that are developed more in depth later in the book, where the authors explore the idea that non-state actors are actually effective and legitimate tools of war. Chapter 1 is entitled, The Weapons Revolution, which invariably comes first. And for those of you who listened to my last episode, part 1 of this, this relates pretty closely to some of the things I was talking about with developing the right tools for the job and using the right tools at the right time, but goes a bit further into some areas that I think are pretty scary considering the context of today. The chapter opens up with some praise and some criticism of the United States, saying that we do a good job of developing new weapons and using new and old weapons in combination, but that we are far too reliable on technology and spending our way to the top. Stringing together a summary from a subsection called Weapons of New Concepts and New Concepts of Weapons, the authors say, to ensure that the weapons are in the lead, one must continue to up the ante in development costs, the result of this continued raising of the stakes is that no one has enough money to maintain the lead. Proposing a new concept of weapons does not require relying on the springboard of new technology. 
It just demands lucid, incisive thinking. This is not a strong point of the Americans who are slaves to technology in their thinking. The new concept of weapons is a view of weapons in the broad sense, which views as weapons all means which transcend the military realm, but which can still be used in combat operations. Some morning people will awake to discover with surprise that quite a few gentle and kind things have begun to have offensive and lethal characteristics. And for me, this is one of many statements in this book from all the way back in 1999 that make eerie predictions of the world that we're seeing today. Uh, when I hear this, I think of Huawei cell phones, social media, uh, Hollywood capture by China, um, the mass media, all things being subtly leveraged from afar and from within by our enemies to gradually degrade the integrity of American culture and society, to turn neighbor against neighbor and generally divide us. In the final subsection of the first chapter called The Trend to Kinder Weapons, the authors acknowledge that people are starting to celebrate the fact that wars seem to be getting less and less bloody as history goes on. They then turn and weaponize this fact, saying, Influenced by human rights and other new political concepts, the best way to achieve victory is to control, not to kill. And this is a concept that I think is wholly foreign to most Americans. The idea that our enemies or that anyone could see human rights as merely a new political concept and think of it only in a way that weaponizes it. It's important for us to reflect here and recognize that the enemies we contend with in this world are not mirror images of ourselves or our own thinking, and that much of the danger here is in that our enemies study us in our manner of thinking deeply, and we know little to nothing of them. Moving into chapter two entitled, The War God's Face Has Become Indistinct, the authors elaborate more on the idea that warfare and the definition of war uh, is becoming blurred and will become further blurred in the future. But what's also interesting about this chapter is they predict many of the things that have occurred over the last 20 years and many of the things that are happening right now. The authors wrap up the first subsection saying, that the biggest difference between contemporary wars and the wars of the past is that in contemporary wars, the overt goal and the covert goal are often two different matters. And here in the margin, I wrote Belt and Road Initiative because I guess this stood out to me as an example of somewhere where we have no idea what the covert goals are. For those of you unfamiliar, the Belt and Road Initiative is a Chinese initiative to build infrastructure in Africa that started around 2013. And if you look around online, there's a ton of speculation. Some saying there's nothing to worry about. Some saying it's just an investment in infrastructure for trade reasons. And others believing that there are all sorts of covert goals. Some have noted that with investment in infrastructure almost always comes the growth of populations and economic growth and believe that the Chinese are merely investing in future markets for their goods and services. Along the same lines, others have noted that by connecting more nations to Chinese goods and services, China is able to circumvent U.S. and allied controlled trades, thus 
getting an upper hand in the trade war. Considering all of this, it's worth noting that as the Chinese presence in Africa has grown since 2013, the presence of the U.S. and other nations has steadily fallen off. And of course, nothing in this world is free, so all of these infrastructure projects are coming at the cost of large loans being given from China to these poor developing nations. And some are calling these loans to developing nations debt traps and a new form of colonialism. So is either of these predictions true? Maybe both? Maybe neither? I think that the point I was trying to make with my note of the Belt and Road Initiative in the margin was that it's hard for China's competitors to even decipher their intention. And either outcome is beneficial. It's a win-win for them. I think of it kind of like uh, international jiu-jitsu where they're setting up multiple submissions and just letting their opponents choose which one to give up. In reading up on this subject, I came across an article in Forbes that made the claim that there was nothing to worry about because these are merely Chinese businessmen working purely for profit. And that just shows to me how ignorant we are of the rest of the world. Nobody in China works independent of the government. Yes, they may be working primarily for profit, but in order to protect that profit, they must be in compliance with the government. Even many American businesses submit to the will of China to protect their pocketbooks. So it's completely insane to think that Chinese businesses operate independently of the Chinese government, especially given everything that we know today. The authors go on in the next subsection to say, a network war or a nanometer war might become a reality right in our midst. It is likely to be very intense, but with practically no bloodshed. Nevertheless, it is likely to determine who is the victor and who the vanquished in an overall war. The battle space will overlap more and more with non-battle space, serving also to make the line between these two entities less and less clear. If it's even possible to start a war in a computer room or a stock exchange that will send an enemy country to its doom, is there non-battle space anywhere? Where is the battlefield? The answer would be everywhere. In another subsection entitled Who Fights, the authors say, It is likely that a pasty-faced scholar wearing thick eyeglasses is better suited to be a modern soldier than is a strong, young lowbrow with bulging biceps. Warfare no longer is an exclusive imperial garden where professional soldiers alone can mingle. A tendency towards civilization has begun to become evident. And this is a really interesting prediction of what's going on right now in our world. The wars that are defeating the United States are not occurring on battlefields, and there is no bloodshed. They're occurring in college classrooms, in corporate boardrooms, and even in living rooms all across America. They're taking place in movie theaters and in the stock market and in trade and even on our cell phones and where we watch TV. And the authors go on to speak of the natural cover for clandestine attacks that this type of warfare provides, saying, how does one know for certain which damage is the result of games and which damage is the result of warfare, which attacks are individual acts by citizens, and which acts represent hostile actions by non-professional warriors, or perhaps even organized hacker warfare launched by a state. And man, is that relevant to so much going on today. Not only the Belt and Road Initiative with it we just talked about where people are left wondering who's responsible, businessmen, the government, both, what are their intentions, but also to all of the hacking attacks going on right now. I mean, think about how many attacks have happened this year in the U.S. And actually, let's talk about that because I don't think most people realize just how many attacks 
go on each and every day here in the U.S. and across the globe. I tried to do a little research to look up the total number of attacks on the U.S., how many by various countries like Russia, China, North Korea, Iran. But the truth is, it was impossible to get that data because no one seems to know for sure. All anyone seems to know is that there are a lot of attacks happening all the time and their source is extremely easy to conceal. I found myself doing a lot of my research from a list of significant cyber incidents on the website of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Just looking at 2021 alone, the list of attacks was absurdly long. Uh, then filtering down and editing out only the attacks that I thought were relevant to this conversation and obvious U.S. interests, I still ended up with a list of attacks that was three pages long. That's just for the first six months of this year of known attacks that aren't being concealed from us for security reasons. And then from that subset, only the major attacks that this site thought were worth noting. So I'm going to run through the most relevant of these as quickly as I can. And even then, you'll probably get bored and tune out. But isn't that the point? That this is happening so frequently, and we're just bored and tuned out to it all. Starting in January 2021, hackers linked to the Chinese government are responsible for ransomware attacks around the globe, totaling over $100 million in ransom. Hackers links to Hezbollah breached telecom com companies of the U.S. and several of its allies, exploiting these for intelligence gathering and data theft. February 2021, unknown hackers attempt to raise levels of sodium hydroxide in a water supply in Florida exploiting a remote access system. North Korean hackers attempt to steal more than $1.3 billion in cash and cryptocurrency. March 2021, hackers believed to be out of China target an electricity grid in India. And if you live in Texas, you know how devastating this kind of attack can be as this attack comes a month after our own grid went down. One of the first things that I said following the power outages and the freak out here in Austin was that our enemies were watching closely and making note of how we reacted to this natural disaster and how easily it would be to exploit it in the future uh, by opportunists. Also in March, Chinese government hackers target Microsoft, stealing information from over 30,000 organizations around the world. Both China and Russia target the European Medicine Agency related to COVID-19 vaccines. Chinese hackers use Facebook to send malicious links to Uyghur activists, journalists, and dissidents. And if you don't know about the genocide of Uyghur Muslims in China, I encourage you to look into that. It's something I've talked about in one of my other podcasts, uh, and there's a lot of info out there if you dig for it a little. Russian hackers steal thousands of emails after breaching the U.S. State Department. Iranian hackers target medical researchers in the U.S. and Israel. April 2021, Chinese-backed hackers breach New York City's Transport Authority. Two state-sponsored hacking groups exploit a VPN service to attack primarily U.S. defense contractors. 20 airline reservation systems are knocked out by malware. Hopefully many people at least remember in May 2021 the Colonial Pipeline hacking. This is the largest fuel pipeline in the United States, which had to pay $5 million ransom in order to get function back. And the attack is now attributed to a Russian hacking group. Also in May, the world's largest meat processor was hit with a separate ransomware attack from another Russian-speaking hacking group. 
And another pipeline business was hit with the same kind of attack as the Colonial Pipeline. And rounding out the first half of the year in June 2021, there's an attack on a newsletter service used by U.S. lawmakers, another attack on a government contractor that works on nuclear weapons, Russia falsifies tracking data of NATO ships, Russian intelligence launches hundreds of attempts against government and non-government targets, Russian intelligence gains access to Microsoft accounts, Chinese target Verizon and Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. The Iranian government launches a political unrest and disinformation campaign in Israel through WhatsApp and other messaging apps. And in the midst of the U.S. drawdown, a Chinese group has started hacking attacks against the Afghan government. Turning back to one of the main points of this paper... Uh, These groups are so hard to defend against and target because, as the authors point out, the lines between state and non-state actor, between warfare and mischief, have become so blurred it's nearly impossible to tell the difference. And one of the questions we probably need to start asking ourselves is, does that difference exist anymore or even deserve to be examined? Turning to somewhat of an aside here for a moment, as the authors move into the various forms of future warfare, there's a paragraph here that I find completely insane in the context of today. Speaking of oppression of people of Chinese descent in Indonesia, the authors say, The government imposed a strict blockade on news about the organized aggressive actions against the ethnic Chinese living in Indonesia. The aggressive actions were first made public on the internet by witnesses with a sense of justice. As a result, the whole world was utterly shocked and the Indonesian government and military were pushed before the bar of morality and justice. And the note I have in the margin just says, Extreme irony in the treatment of the Uyghurs. For those of you not aware of the situation, Uyghur Muslims are an ethnic group in China who are undergoing capture, abduction, re-education camps, forced sterilization, and genocide. This has been going on for quite some time, and while general media coverage is pretty light, there's plenty on the internet to be pretty damning to the Chinese government here. The irony here is the Chinese were wise enough to push what little coverage on the internet there was before the global community and force some form of moral judgment for the Indonesian government. On the flip side, as the Chinese become the offenders in what is essentially the exact same situation, no one is pushing them before the moral bar. The mainstream media is all but complicit in the suppression of this information, presumably to protect their pocketbooks, and the rest of us are just not to be bothered with this kind of thing. We're far more interested in developing deep-seated hatreds for our fellow Americans on social media and arguing all day long about whether there's 72 or 73 different genders. Moving back to the paper and the various types of war, we see some incredible foresight from these authors as they move into terrorism and financial war fronts. Remember, this was 1999 when they wrote... These organizations, which all have a certain military flavor, generally driven by some extreme creed or cause, such as Islamic organizations like Osama bin Laden's, which blew up the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, are more likely to be the new breeding ground for contemporary wars. 
when a nation state or national armed force which adheres to certain rules and will only use limited force to obtain a limited goal faces off with one of these types of organizations which never observe any rules and which are not afraid to fight an unlimited war using unlimited means, it will often prove very difficult for the nation state or national armed force to gain the upper hand. Then moving directly on to the financial front, they say, who can say that George Soros is not a financial terrorist? When people revise the history books on 20th century warfare in the 21st century, the main protagonist will be George Soros. That section made me take a pause and consider the incredible foresight and intellect of some of our adversaries in this world. They must be taken seriously. And if we are to maintain our spot at the top of the world or even retain the existence of our culture, we must give them the attention that they give us. The chapter concludes by listing a few other forms of potential warfare, ecological warfare, psychological warfare, and they give the example of spreading rumors. I think we can all think of quite a few examples of that over the last few years in American politics. Uh, media warfare, manipulating what people see and hear in order to lead public opinion along. Again, something that I think we can all think of many examples of in the last few years. Network warfare, technological warfare, and then they give the example of creating monopolies by setting standards independently. Again, something I don't even know if we need our enemies for after this last year. If any of you listened to my 40-minute piece on COVID and talking about shutting down small businesses and creating essentially government-sponsored monopolies with places like Target, Walmart, and Amazon being considered essential, but brick-and-mortar stores, mom-and-pop shops that aren't big enough uh, being shut down and forced online to these mega-retailers. Fabrication warfare, including counterfeiting, resources warfare, ec economic aid warfare, cultural warfare, leading cultural trends along in order to assimilate those with different views. That one's quite scary in the modern age of social media that's being manipulated by many of our enemies. And they summarize the point nicely saying, the goal of this kind of warfare will encompass more than merely using means that involve the force of arms to force the enemy to accept one's will. Rather, the goal should be to use all means whatsoever to force the enemy to serve one's own interests. I only highlighted two brief notes in chapter three entitled, A Classic That Deviates from the Classics. The first says, following the Cold War, the period in which alliances were formed on the basis of ideology faded away, while the approach in which alliances are built on interests rose to primacy. I actually don't agree with that statement. Uh, I think that that tendency to build alliances on a common interest more than a common culture or common morality is a practice as old as warfare. I can see how the Cold War probably accentuated and accelerated that practice and that tendency, but I don't really see it as anything new. And the other little section in this chapter that I highlighted states, it would appear that in all future wars, in addition to the basic method of military strikes, the force of the media will increasingly be another player in the war and will play a role comparable to that of military strikes in promoting the course of the war. And then they go on to say, however, the effects of the media have always been a two-edged sword. So you can kind of see here their view of the interplay between promotion and suppression in the media. 
When wrangled and controlled properly, the media can promote all sorts of wars as noble and just. And when not controlled properly, it's a double-edged sword which can bring to light facts that are not flattering to certain regimes. And I'm going to take a pause here just to clarify that as I go through this paper, I'm not always advocating fighting fire with fire or using these tactics ourselves. Clearly, from the subject matter of this podcast, I'm hoping that everyone gets here that I would never advocate for this form of control of the media where we use it as a promotional tool for the wars that we want to win and only to bring to light the flaws of our enemies and suppress our own flaws. On the media front of war where I think that we're truly losing in the United States is in the fact that our enemies are doing these things, promotion and suppression, and our media is not acting as it should, as a free entity that's bringing all things to the surface to be examined by the public, and we as citizens are not doing our duty to examine anything that is brought to the surface. A truly free society functioning correctly combats this kind of media warfare by surfacing truth. Doing so can certainly be messy and confusing at times, but it's the only way to fight this type of media war and hold on to liberty and a moral standard. Chapter 4, the last chapter in Part 1, uh, is interesting in that it shows just how focused our adversaries are on the United States. This book, which references Sun Tzu and proposes a new type of warfare, a new realm of warfare, a new future of warfare, and is very broad in those respects, is also specific in its focus on the United States. Chapter 4 is entitled, What Do Americans Gain by Touching the Elephant? Summarizing what the authors mean by touching an elephant, they say, Because the nationalistic instincts of the Americans I especially admire are particularly prominent in the long-standing sectarianism that exists among the military services, theoretical blind spots and thought errors are bound to occur in the research to the extent that a grand warfare investigation has been turned into a blind person trying to size up an elephant. What unfolded in the eyes of the three branches of the U.S. military were three different Gulf Wars. Each of the three branches stuck to its own arguments and made every effort to find the evidence most advantageous to its respective branch. And this may be fair criticism, and the authors talk through the advantages and disadvantages of the U.S. military functioning in this way, but what's most alarming to me is not so much that criticism in specific, but the fact that they are so well-studied and so well-versed on each branch, each general's response to the war, and each analysis of the war. Further criticism of the U.S. military and how we conduct war comes in a subsection entitled The Illness of Extravagance and Zero Casualties. The authors say, Desert Storm manifested once again the Americans' unlimited extravagance in war and has already become an addiction. Giving some examples of wasteful logistic support, they accuse us of fighting a luxury-style war. But the deepest cut comes with their accusation that we have a weak stomach for the true costs of war. They say, What you must know is that this is a nationality that has never been willing to pay the price of life, and moreover, has always vied for victory at all costs. 
Ever since the Vietnam War, both the military and American society have been sensitized to human casualties during military operations, almost to the point of morbidity. All of the opponents who have engaged in battle with the American military have probably mastered the secret of success. If you have no way of defeating this force, you should kill its rank-and-file soldiers. And then they go on to say that for the Americans, there must be victory without casualties. This is pretty simplistic criticism on a complex issue, but certainly criticism that still deserves consideration. History, even modern history, provides plenty of evidence of Americans willing to spill blood and give their lives, and Americans who are still willing to give their lives for their country. But there is something strange in the way that modern Americans consume wars. Uh, one thing that I've noticed is that it doesn't seem to be so much that we are giving life or taking life, but how many lives we are giving. In an age when the number of deaths ticks away at the bottom of a screen, and that's our measure of whether a war is just or not, it's hard to say that the enemy is wrong in their assessment that they just need to tick that number high enough and the war is over. For example, I remember when the media made a huge deal about the 1,000th soldier killed in Iraq, and I always found that quite disgusting and morbid. They made such a big deal about number 1,000. Like, that number mattered more than just the general idea that people were giving their lives. It made me a little sick to think that nobody seemed to care about the mother of number 999 who gave their life for their country, but for some reason, number 1,000 mattered. That person's mother did not deserve to lose their child. Numbers certainly matter in measuring winnability, the scale of tragedy, etc., but it's worth considering the criticism that we focus too much on the number and seem to think that the number matters more than the mere fact that we've chosen to give and take life. Consider Somalia, which was a conflict started by politicians that most soldiers hardly understood. Then, when American blood was shed, it was the soldiers who wanted to stay, and the politicians who started the fight who suddenly became queasy and pulled out. As a nation, we have the right to choose when, where, and for what we fight. We can leave any conflict whenever we want. But when we have decided that a conflict is moral and worth killing and dying for, it's important that we don't just turn tail and run at the first sight of trouble. Now, that's not to say that we should remain in a conflict merely to give off the appearance that we're not turning tail and then stay engaged with no clear goals before us. But as I talked about in the first part of this episode, uh, the last episode, this balance between when to stay and when to go is solved through clear objectives. And even when objectives must be concealed, they can be clear and attainable. And one day, once they're achieved, the path to those objectives that we took will become illuminated. Finally, chapter four wraps up coming back to one of the core points of the paper, saying military operations will never again be the entire war. Even adding non-combat military operations cannot count as total dimensionality. Only by adding all non-military combat operations aside from military operations can total dimensional war's complete significance be realized. 
The second half of the paper is entitled A Discussion of New Methods of Operation, and it expands upon the ideas of the first section and proposes some specific strategies for winning wars. A selection from the introduction to part two reads, The national strategy for ensuring the realization of national security targets necessitates carrying out adjustments which go beyond military strategies and even political strategies. Such a strategy takes all things into consideration that are involved in each aspect of the security index, as well as superimposes political, national will, values, and cohesion, and military factors on the economy, culture, foreign relations, technology, environment, natural resources, nationalities, and other parameters. Chapter 5, titled New Methodology of War Games, starts out again explaining why the future of warfare will be different and how the United States will bear the brunt of modern warfare, explaining that groups like the United Nations reduce the likelihood of military conflict but increase the likelihood of non-military warfare. The authors say, The battlefield is next to you and the enemy is on the network. This type of threat to the large network nation of the United States would certainly be greater than for any other nations. They then launch into a frightening worship of amoral Machiavellian tactics, saying, in an age when an old order is about to be removed, those in the lead are frequently those who are the first to destroy the rules or those who are the earliest to adapt to this situation. It must go beyond all of the fetters of politics history, culture, and ethics. Only Machiavelli approached the realm of this thought. Going beyond all limits and boundaries was an ideological revolution. This is extremely important to consider, uh, because while I never advocate for us stooping to the level of abandoning ethics and morality in our conduct of warfare, it is extremely important for us to understand that our enemies are not necessarily working under the pressure of any ethics or morality. And what's more, they may be weaponizing morality itself against us. The chapter wraps up with the authors proposing that one of the most important elements in winning future wars will be utilizing combinations of various types of warfare to create new types of warfare. In a pretty eerie passage that reflects a lot of the things going on today and a lot of the attempts that we've already discussed earlier, the authors say, if the attacking side secretly musters large amounts of capital without the enemy nation being aware of this at all and launches a sneak attack against its financial markets, then after causing a financial crisis, buries a computer virus and hacker detachment in the opponent's computer system in advance, while at the same time carrying out a network attack against the enemy so that the civilian electricity network, traffic dispatching network, financial transaction network, telephone communications network, and mass media network are completely paralyzed. This will cause the enemy nation to fall into social panic, street riots, and a political crisis. And if you remember, a great deal of those theoretical attacks that I just listed here were actually attempted within the last six months in the list that I gave earlier of various hacking attempts in 2021. 
The authors then list various types of warfare, saying that any of these can be combined with the others to create new forms of warfare. And I won't go through the whole list, but I do want to highlight a few that these authors thought were appropriate to include. Financial, network, biochemical, resources, ecological, smuggling, drug, media, terrorist, and ideological. Chapter 6 gets a little weird and specific, so we'll breeze through it. It's titled, Seeking Rules of Victory, The Force Moves Away from the Point of the Attack. And in it, the authors bring up the golden ratio of 0.618, which appears in mathematics, and in nature. And they point out that it also occurs frequently in military history, though some of the examples they give are seemingly reaching. They basically just use any example where maybe there's been two-thirds victories or three-fifths victories in battles that have led to being victorious in war. They then talk about the strategy of deviating towards the side element in battle, and again propose that 0.618 is the ideal ratio for deviating towards the side element when attacking. It's a bit strange in its presentation, but it does bring up one good point, and that's that commanders and politicians should be focused on winning the overall war rather than hyper-focused on individual battles. I'll breeze through chapter 7 as well, as it doesn't offer a whole lot that hasn't been said already. The chapter is entitled, 10,000 Methods Combined as One, Combinations that Transcend Boundaries. The chapter opens up once again talking about how different the face of future war will be and how out of place current soldiers will be. It then turns to another frightening worship of Machiavelli saying, the necessary new method is to create a complete military Machiavelli, achieve objectives by fair means or foul. That is the most important spiritual legacy of this Italian political thinker of the Renaissance. Really, the only new information in this chapter is a breakdown of what they believe should be the levels of war, grand war, which is war policy, war, which is war strategy, campaigns, which is operational art, and battles, which is tactics. But what I found most interesting in chapter 7 wasn't so much the majority of the content, which wasn't really new, but the following two sentences, which read, In 1995 and 96, mainland China announced that it would conduct test launches of missiles in the Taiwan Strait and that it would conduct military exercises. As the missile tracks etched the sky, the Taiwan stock market immediately slid downward like an avalanche touched off by a bang. What's so interesting about that to me? Merely the mention of Taiwan and the acknowledgement of Taiwan. These days, the Chinese won't acknowledge Taiwan, and neither will many Americans who are held in the pockets of the Chinese. The most recent example being WWE star-turned-movie star John Cena, who merely mentioned Taiwan in a video post, and then in a later apology post looked like a whipped dog, apologizing to China for merely mentioning Taiwan. Oh, by the way, he did it in a U.S. Marine Corps shirt. It's bad enough you bent over for China. You don't need to disgrace the Marine Corps by wearing their shirt while you do it. But this problem goes beyond one giant coward. It's all of Hollywood. Let's look at another WWE star turned movie star, uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who I greatly admire for his work ethic and all that he does. 
And as far as I know, he's never embarrassed our country by apologizing to its enemies for merely mentioning the existence of some entity that they refuse to acknowledge. But when The Rock makes a movie, where do you think he goes for publicity? It's not on a tour of the Midwest. It's straight to China. And that makes sense because you're going to sell more tickets in China than anywhere in the world and you want your movie to play in China for that reason. And I'm not going to say that The Rock should go as far as to not seek Chinese viewers because there's a genocide happening in their country, but it should be extremely concerning to us all to see the power of China's pocketbook in Hollywood. And it goes beyond Hollywood. It goes to major corporations in America. While many of these so-called woke corporations are virtue signaling by standing up for voting rights or holding special diversity classes and trainings for their employees, they're all tellingly silent on the disappearances and genocides happening in China. And that's because they do a great deal of business in China, so they're not going to rock the boat. They're happy to virtue signal when it doesn't threaten their business and there's nothing to lose and everything to gain in the court of public opinion. But as soon as their pocketbook is threatened, all their morals go right out the window. And with that, if you're still hanging in there with me, we are in the final stretch here with Chapter 8, the final chapter entitled Essential Principles. Uh, this chapter is the one that I felt really brought everything together with the other episode, the last episode that became part one of this small series. And if you listen to the last episode, you'll find a common theme between this chapter and uh, some of the points I was making in that episode. The authors open up by once again explaining how we can no longer tell between what is and is not battle space, but they then quickly move to explaining that unrestricted warfare does not mean unrestricted objective setting. The authors advise, when setting objectives, give full consideration to the feasibility of accomplishing them. Do not pursue objectives which are unrestricted in time and space. Only with limits can they be explicit and practical, and only with limits can there be functionality. In addition, after accomplishing an objective, one will then have the resilience to go on and pursue the next. When setting objectives, one must overcome the mentality of craving great success and instead consciously pursue limited objectives and eliminate objectives which are beyond one's abilities, even though they may be proper. This is because every objective which is achievable is limited. No matter what the reason, setting objectives which exceed allowable limits of the measures available will only lead to disastrous consequences. A company which has limited resources but which is nevertheless keen to take on unlimited responsibilities is headed for only one possible outcome, and that is bankruptcy. The authors further clarify their perspective, saying, For a measure to be unlimited means that to accomplish some designated objective, one can break through restrictions and select among various measures. And I'll be brief here since I already talked in depth on this subject in part one, but if you already listened to part one, then you know that this is something I think that we have failed at for some time now and criticize American politicians for using wars as political pawns here at home rather than setting clear goals that we can work towards and achieve abroad. 
And that brings us to the conclusion, but before I wrap up, there is something I missed that I wanted to touch on briefly. Uh, somewhere in the book, the authors mention how the traditional organizations will not be the only ones who influence war in the future, and they give examples of future organizations that will influence the outcomes of war as Greenpeace and religious groups and the Olympic Committee. And I'm really surprised I didn't come across that in my highlighted sections because it stood out to me so much. Because for the last few months, I've watched the debate over transgender athletes in the Olympics play out on TV and social media and places like that. And all I could really think was, no matter what your point of view on the topic, is no one realizing that the Olympics never made this an issue before, and suddenly when it's an American issue that's dividing our society, it's brought to the forefront of the Olympics? Right or wrong, the move doesn't seem genuine. It seems opportunist to me. And rather than having open, honest debate under the First Amendment, we're arguing and becoming further divided and trying to censor one another, playing right into the hands of our adversaries. In the conclusion to the paper, the authors offer two warnings that I found very appropriate. They say... On this battlefield, people still fight, plunder, and kill each other as before, but the weapons are more advanced and the means more sophisticated. So while it is somewhat less bloody, it is still just as brutal. Given this reality, mankind's dream of peace is still as elusive as ever. How to conduct war is obviously no longer a question for the consideration of military people alone. However, the history of the past 100 years tells us that turning over warfare to the politicians is not the ideal way to resolve this important issue either. Hopefully you found this exercise as useful as I did, uh, and I hope that that's how you do think about it, is as an exercise. Uh, as I went through it, I dealt with thoughts as they popped into my head. Um, even now, I'm already thinking of things that I failed to make my point clear on, or things that I may have communicated poorly, uh, ideas that may not exactly reflect what I'm really feeling or thinking, thoughts that may conflict with long-held beliefs and require further examination. But the most important thing for me here is the perspective gained and the illumination of a playbook that's being acted out daily uh, and starting to think about these issues at all. So, as always, thanks for listening, and remember, I may be wrong, but that ability to test ideas, learn, and grow is what makes this country great. So be honest, allow yourself to be wrong sometimes, and be fearless in the exercise of your rights. If you want to follow me, see what's coming up, see what I'm working on, it's tbh underscore I may be wrong on Instagram, or if you want to get in touch with some ideas, questions, comments, it's to be honest, I may be wrong at gmail.com.